Hello, everyone. Quick content warning. At least I felt like maybe it was an important content warning for a hopefully very small percentage of you. We're going to be talking about a highly specific Japanese cult today for a brief moment. My hope is that I don't send any of you into some spiraling derealization because of your run in with a cult or an MLM or something, but hopefully the details of this cult will be so far removed from any potential experience any of you had that it will bypass that potential outcome. But nonetheless, I just wanted to prime you. And that's it. My little brother Mason drags circles in the dirt and grass of the front yard with his little shoe, twiddling his fingers in a giddy, half-distracted ADHD contemplation. We're smack dab in the middle of a piping hot game of truth or dare, just the two of us, and he's thinking about which dare he'll assign me next, because I always pick dare. He stands up straight as a light bulb appears over his head, puffing his chest outwardly towards the vast 40 acres of land we live on, towards the behemoth wild cherry tree towering over the swaths of wheat and sweet grass at its base, towards the cluster of climbable pine trees cuddling along the field's edge, towards the haggard, deflated, blue chromatic helium balloon tangled in the weeds, marking the gravesite of our late Newfoundland dog, Isaac. He turns to me and says, I dare you to run to the top of the hill and scream, I like to eat underwear. We laugh, and then I quickly set into older sibling determination as if to say, I'll show you how it's done. So off I run, faster and faster, careful to watch for the badger burrows below as butterflies waltz around me, following the path cleared by our rideable John Deere lawnmower. I pass the cherry tree, glancing back at my brother whose distance from me makes it easy to squish his whole body between my two fingers. Little twerp. I advance up the hill, pushing with all my might until reaching the full ascent. Then quickly close my eyes and scream this childish epithet as loud as I can. I open my eyes, and my jaw nearly hits the earth in disbelief. There. Far across the rest of the field, into our neighbor's property, do I see something beyond stupefying. Something absurdly out of place. A ginormous black panther stalking the edge of the tree line across the way. And suddenly, I'm frozen. Uh-oh. As I try to do the math, D equals R over T, you know, if that, in case that jungle cat sees me, you know, who will make it back to the house first? And will I have both the time and the fortitude to scoop up my little chipmunk brother on the way to safety? But then I realize I've got bigger problems. My knee joints are completely cemented. All I can do is watch incredulously as this black panther traverses the length of the field and pray my golden head of hair and translucent skin serves as camouflage on this directly sunny day. Seconds stretch out like cello strings into minutes as I stare, and finally the shadow cat disappears into the tree line to my left. And just like that, the trance is lifted, oh, and I'm running, <laughs> twice as fast on the way back, allowing the descent of the hill to catapult me into our little house on the prairie, leaving my brother in the dust. I burst through the front door and bang on the bathroom door next to the mudroom where my mom is showering breaking her little sacred zen time to tell her about something entirely unbelievable. And of course, I'm met with the wrath of a thousand wasps as she tells me to get lost. A panther. Yeah, right. I have spent many years thinking over this memory, knowing that you'll just as likely find a black panther in northern Wisconsin as you will a garden in Antarctica, or, or maybe an olive garden. Both are roughly equally as unlikely. And I suppose the best I can come up with for now is that the forest opens itself up to those who wish to get to know her better. And this is just one of the many memories I have. Living in the middle of nowhere on a former emu farm led to hours of self-amusement in our backyard, a sanctuary for rewilding and play. 
In the present day, there's a secret place I like to go to in Norway. It has a similar vibe of fertility, of natural springs, and abundance. Not many people here know of this place, but it is here you can find virtually any mushroom or wild berry, where farmers plant cherry and apple trees and where the best fresh-pressed eplemousse or apple juice I've ever tasted originates. It's a place of overflowing sustenance where many of my dreams have flourished, including a recent one. In the dream, I'm riding on the four-wheeler in this magical place in Norway, and I turn to look behind me, and I'm being approached, this time by a white tiger as I drive away, and it disappears into the thicket. I spent the most recent past few days in contemplation about that dream, not because I wanted it to mean anything, but because I keep having sort of intrusive visions about it. And there's also something to be said about dreams and how they make us feel when we wake up. I feel like there's a whole set of emotions that we have no vocabulary for when we dream. And this one is one of kind of nostalgia that beckons back to the Black Panther times, whatever that was. And has me feeling kind of like a spiritual download or a synchronistic download of sorts. And I've found that the um, significance of dreaming about jungle cats, be them panthers or white tigers, who are both incredibly seclusive and rare, when they show themselves to you is a sign of maybe spiritual development, of greater things to come, maybe of encouragement, um, but that we kind of have to match their energy when we do so. Giant jungle cats thrive because their senses are heightened and they're aware of their surroundings and they're strong and, well, they're predators. <laughs> and that's how they get along. That's how they thrive. So it has me wondering, will I too heed the jungle cat's call? Or maybe more importantly, because I'm telling you this, will you? For Greenlanders like Finn, the disappearing ice is a weather vane, proof global warming is happening right here, right now. When you live here, you don't really have to be a scientist to notice the, the changes that we've seen. The world is magic, not a little bit. 100% every atom from one end of this cosmos to the other is magic, magic, magic. From coast to coast, people are fleeing flames, wind, and water. They're very dangerous conditions, and um, in 22 years of doing this, I've never seen fire conditions we call like this. Mycophobia, the irrational fear of the unknown when it comes to fungi. Up the coast, the Pacific Northwest saw a record breaking heat wave earlier in the summer. Oh, this is unfortunately the, our new normal. This is the first time it was 116 degrees. We have now entered into 6X, the sixth major extinction on this planet. Fate has chosen you to hear about this. I, I actually think the psychedelic experience is significant because it, it addresses the two biggest problems we face as a civilization, which I would list as tribalism and the environmental crisis. The mycelium is sentient. It knows that you are there. When you walk across landscapes, it leaps up in the aftermath of your footsteps trying to grab debris. It's what everyone thinks is impossible. That's actually what it is. You've had a, a taste of another way to be, of a more open, less defended way to be, and you have that memory, and you can reconnect to it. it it's, uh, it's boundary dissolving is what it is, and we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. I think engaging mycelium can help save the world.
Welcome to the Future Mycelium Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Masomi. Thanks so much for being here. Girl, I need a perpetual hearth right now and a cup of cacao like twice a day. And I am currently wearing snow pants in my office. (laughs) And, uh, you know, no lights detected. It do be super icy outside in the kind of way that really chills the bones. And I fully believe our bones have this intelligence imbued into them based on like biological and environmental feedback. And, you know, what I like to say, too, is that the Nordic chill, it doesn't just pass over you. It passes through you like neutrinos or something. And admittedly, it makes it really hard to wake up with that sort of manic pep that you'll easily tap into in like July when the sun basically sits at like the same latitude in the sky every day. But nowadays the bones be like, slow down, rest, tell some stories, and don't forget to take your omega-3 and vitamin D supplements. Vitamin D and endorphins from forcing yourself to exercise are like the thin lifeline that gets you through this winter. (laughs) In some ways, it's really intense to live in like a boreal landscape or at this altitude. And it creeps on you really slowly until spring pounces on you. And in a matter of one or two days, you feel like this suffocating wool blanket be ripped off of you. And you're like, oh, so that's how I was functioning for the past three months. I'm just going to try not to think about that because it's not even January yet, but we're going to pull through. But then this makes me think, weren't our ancestors also listening to their bones? You know, especially the boreal ancestors that some of us have. They were hunkering down, okay? They were not overly expending energy. It was a time of self-preservation and nature rewarded those who paced themselves, right? In a way, it is such a sign of modernity and maybe late-stage capitalism to want to lose weight during the winter. Like, caloric deficits for our ancestors, are you kidding me? It kind of like makes me both grateful of the 21st century affordances we have, and then it like also shows you how disconnected you are to nature. I guess, you know, leave it all to say, rewilding the heart and the mind, it's a process. But I reckon we ought to choose the archaic route today and tell some stories about one of the most amazing mushrooms ever. Reishi! My goal is to make you realize that you've been sleeping, you've been deeply slumbering many a year on this amazing, amazing mushroom. And I might also say, this is an issue of mycological justice, okay, that people aren't introduced to this mushroom as they enter adulthood, because it's really the mushroom that represents way showing into the realities of living for so many reasons. Like many botanical allies, reishi is a fungal ally that has a lot of, I like to say, subversive notes of psilocybin, but it's completely legal. And its aim is like longevity and spiritual interconnectedness, knowledge of the self. It's also adaptogenic. It has, we would we would maybe call it a panacea or like a cure-all. And I don't use that term lightly or hardly ever, but you won't believe the benefits it holds. You know, like I'm all for the holistic and the organic approaches to our lifestyles. And I do follow those things like drink enough water, get enough sleep, eat a varied plant-rich diet. And, uh, you know, claiming one food or superfood is a cure-all is this grossly oversimplified approach to health that you'll really only see in the West. Eat 12 cups of cauliflower every day and see these amazing benefits. Go on a watermelon fast for two months. Or that jelly juice. I'm going to drag jelly juice. Do you guys know what jelly juice is? It's a Facebook group that maybe is still a thing. And I'm not sure if this woman's been arrested, but she was recommending people drink salted cabbage juice and only that. And some people sadly like died from doing that. But yeah, this sort of this this approach of like, this is the one thing that's going to fix all your problems. I don't advocate that at all. With that being said, reishi is the one thing 
I have found that truly has that sort of quote unquote, like fountain of youth type of energy. And it's about as close to a panacea as you can get. Alongside a few other mushrooms, honestly, mushrooms just be doing the most. Today, we're going to be talking about reishi, its origins, its names, its influences on art and culture, linguistic meaning, and its tangential relationship to a Japanese foot reading cult, and more. And also, disclaimer, I personally have been taking a medicinal dose of reishi for over a year now, and the benefits have been, anecdotally, far-reaching in so many ways. And with that being said, although it's virtually impossible to overdose on reishi, and I haven't found any research that says taking reishi in a medicinal dose has negative side effects, I also don't know if it interacts negatively with any specific prescribed medications or something like that. So the aim here is always to teach and encourage, but then you take responsibility for what you decide to do with the information and do more research outside of a podcast. One podcast or one book can't teach you everything you need to know. With that being said, I will be discussing at the end, like the last section of this episode today is going to be discussing my relationship with reishi, my spiritual journey with it, and why I'm so passionate about this mushroom above any other kind. So please sit back, relax, and get your socks blown clean off by today's mycological knowledge. Miss Reishi, Miss Lingji, Miss Ganoderma lucidum, we're coming for you. Before we talk about reishi, a little bit of quick housekeeping. I don't have any blunders to account for from the last podcast, although I would encourage you all to send in anything, any thoughts, feelings to the mycelium, to the future mycelium podcast gmail which is future mycelium pod at gmail.com or you can send me a dm and follow me on instagram i have two accounts at mushroom affirmations and at future dot mycelium and if you could please go on Spotify. If you're listening to this on Spotify, they just opened up a new rating system for podcasts and you aren't able to write a review, but you're able to put like a five-star review just by clicking on a button. And it's so easy. I'd really appreciate it if you could do that. That's a free way to support the show right now. Or if you're listening on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, feel free to write me a review there. And then if you could also send it to me, if you want it read on the podcast, send me your review either on the Gmail or send it to me on on Instagram so that I can read it on the show because I want to encourage audience participation, obviously. And I did get my first Apple podcast review the other day, but tell me you're a new podcaster without telling me you're a new podcaster. I like found the review or I got an email about it and I read it and I was like, oh, wow, this is really nice. And now I can't find it. And when I go and look, I don't know if the person went back and deleted it. (laughs) I hope not. But when they did write it and when I did find it and read it, it said something along the lines of this was a great podcast and it was very informative to listen to. So thank you. And if you did write that, if you did write that review and you're listening to me now and you want me to like give you your credit and your name, if you could just send it to me on the email, like so much emphasis on emailing me guys, please do that. (laughs) And I also want to say that our Lord and Savior, Paul Stamets, (laughs) the mycological daddy, (laughs) our mycological uh, godfather, if you will, just shared some research that proves mycelium is truly intelligent. And he wrote a post about that on his Instagram. And it's a picture of a mycelium Petri dish that talks about how mycelium has biofeedback and it it knows what's going on. It is super intelligent. And we have like research about that. So waking up to that and reading that before recording this podcast today, I thought I would put in a little bit of mushroom news. And that reminds me, one of the listeners also told me that they enjoy when the podcast is a little bit more conversational. And I totally agree. 
I started scripting the podcast episodes in the very beginning just because I didn't want to lose my train of thought. I had a lot to say. And in the beginning couple of episodes, it was like very scientific and I wanted to lay the groundwork down for, you know, information for people who don't know a whole lot about mushrooms. And I have found that as time goes on, I get a little bit more relaxed. I'm a little bit more used to this incredibly like intimate podcast setup I have with my microphone being so close to my face. And you know, the more podcast episodes you make, the more comfortable you feel to go off script. And one of the other things is that it's really easy for me to info dump and like take too many tangents. And if I didn't script it somewhat, then we would be here for five hours. And that's not fair to either of us. I want to honor my time and yours. <laughs> With all that out of the way, let's talk about reishi. And if you've never looked up a picture of reishi, I might recommend that you go and Google a picture of it if you don't know what it looks like. But it is a big mushroom and it's a polypore. So polypores grow on like trunks or logs or they're inoculated on like sawdust spore logs or like sawdust logs. And they're grown, they can be grown in a few different ways. And we're going to talk about the growing methods in a little bit. But if we want to just lay down reishi, from kingdom down to family. It's in the kingdom fungi. Its division is Basidiomycota. Its class is Agaricomycetes. Its order is Polyporales, and its family is Ganodermatacee. Polypores, they're this group of fungi, and they form these really large fruiting bodies. And what distinguishes them as polypores is that they have pores or tubes underneath. And although there are a lot of polypores, not all of them are that closely related to each other. Another word for polypores are bracket fungi or shelf fungi. And their characteristic is this very woody shelf or like bracket shaped um, circular fruiting body that we call a conch. Maybe you're walking through the forest and you find them on the tree and they're really hard. And it's much different than just like a little mushroom sprouting out of the ground. These are some big, thick boys, okay? And they have to protect themselves and have this hard outer coating, almost like tree bark or almost like, it feels almost like the same density as a tree sometimes because their fruiting time takes longer. Sometimes a mushroom, a mushroom's lifespan is a matter of a week or so. Polypores can take up to like six to eight weeks or even up to a year and a half, two years. Some polypores grow for a really long time. And so they have to have a sort of a shield. They have to have an outward uh, uh, protective coating, if you will. Most polypores inhabit tree trunks or branches and they consume the wood. And some of them are soil inhabiting species that have a mycorrhizal relationship with trees. Polypores are one of the most important agents of wood decay as well. And they play a really significant role in nutrient cycling and carbon dioxide production of forest ecosystems, which is why it's really important that we don't chop down all the trees. Polypores just want to help. And when we cut down all the trees, how are they going to help when there ain't no trees? Hmm? That's science. Riddle me that. There's at least over like a thousand polypore species, but among these thousand of polypores, there's still so much we don't know about a majority of them. And the older the natural forest and the more intact the natural forest, the more diversity of polypores you will find when you compare them to more managed forests or plantations or forests that have been cut down and then are regrowing, also meaning they're under the threat of extinction due to logging and deforestation. Moreover, polypores have such diverse uses outside of their ability to recycle nutrients and break down trees, and they've been studied for their medicinal value. And there's a specific type of polypore called the hook fungus and it looks kind of like a horse hoof that grows off of trees and that was actually found with the Iceman 
that we we recovered from the ice, obviously. And he had a hoof fungus with him because hoof fun- fungi can be used to carry fire with you while traveling around. Very interesting. In a way, you can think of polypores almost as an extension of trees. And what do trees have to do in order to grow so tall? They have to have a very elaborate system of immunology, right? They have to have a lot of different compounds and nutrients in order to fight off pathogens that are coming at them from all sides in the root system, which are also protected from fungi doing a mycorrhizal thing, going back and forth bio feedback of symbiosis. And when a polypore, albeit sometimes these polypores are parasitic to trees, not always, but sometimes they're taking nutrients from the tree that helps the tree survive. And that can be a whole bunch of things. I got a list of scientific things it could be that are in those mushrooms. We'll talk about them more in depth in a little bit. This is including, but not limited to reishi. The bioactive compounds you'll find are polysaccharides, triterpenes, glycoproteins, sterols, phenols, trace elements, volatile oils, tocopherols, phenolic compounds, fatty acids, folates, peptides, nucleotides, phenols, and the list goes on. There's so much more there. And they're not just getting that from nowhere. They're taking it from their ecosystem and manifesting it into their mushroom. And then when we ingest those things, we're getting those anti-inflammatory, antiviral, anti-tumor, anti-carcinogenic properties from the mushroom because they need it for themselves. They didn't just make it and be like, oh, we hope uh, we hope a human or a mammal eats this. They're like, we need this to survive. And then we also take it and we survive. Another great example of a mushroom growing on trees is the agaricon. We'll have to do a separate episode on that. And agaricons grow for a really long time. They're fruiting. They don't fruit just for a year. They grow like year after year after year. And they're also a species that are threatened right now as well too. Another type of polypore you might know besides reishi is Tremedes versicolor, which is the turkey tail fungus. It's a colorful bracket fungus known for its anti-inflammatory, anti-tumor. I mean, it's just got a lot of great benefits similar to reishi, but also different in some ways. The conchs or the fruiting bodies of polypores lie in a close planar grouping of like separate or interconnected horizontal rows. Brackets can range from like one single row of a few caps or it can have dozens of rows of caps that can weigh several hundred pounds. That's from Wikipedia, okay? They're mainly found on trees, both living and dead, and coarse woody debris and may resemble mushrooms, but they're not actually a mushroom. The mushroom is the fruiting body in a cycle of fungi, but not all fungi have mushrooms to show for the way that they sporulate or the way that they reproduce. Some polypores form annual fruiting bodies, and then others are perennial and grow larger year after year after year like the agaricon. How do you grow reishi? What's going on with reishi? You know, a lot of times you'll be walking through the forest and there will suddenly be new mushrooms that pop up out of the ground that were not there two days ago. And then you walk through the forest a couple days later and then they're gone or they've been partially eaten. A lot of mushrooms have a very short lifespan, but not reishi. Most polypores do not. They're in it for, they're they're doing a marathon, okay? They're not sprinting. Mushrooms are sprinting, okay? They are Usain Bolt. I can't think off the top of my head someone who does like the Iron Man, but you know, the polypores be doing more like an Iron Man type of thing or a a full marathon type of deal. Then depending on how you grow them, it can take longer or shorter amount of time. For example, growing reishi mushrooms on logs takes longer if they're grown in bags or containers. You can grow reishi using a block of supplemented sawdust and you can do this indoors or outdoors. And in that case, you could be harvesting fresh reishi around eight weeks, which is not so long. Fruiting of the reishi is the longest stage though, and it can take up to six weeks for reishi mushrooms to reach maturity. But the colonization is really quickly, right? When you inoculate the log, 
the mycelium, which is why mycelium is being grown to replace plastic packaging and things like that, is because it grows really fast between 7 to 14 days. But if you do choose to grow reishi on logs, the colonization can take longer, upwards of 15 to 18 months before you see the signs of reishi mushrooms. And I was watching the sophisticated ways that Japan and China grow reishi. Their methods are a little different and... I'm sure you could imagine this. In Japan, it's like the documentary I watched had Japanese farmers with their Japanese linen clothing doing very wholesome outdoor gardening with their reishi and, you know, inoculating the logs after they wash them so they're moistened <laughs> and then planting them in the ground for a year. The process takes longer. It's not like eight weeks. It's like over a year. And then in China, they have very sophisticated growing methods of <laughs> reishi. And it sort of reminds me, although uh, Squid Games isn't in China, they wear these hazmat suits that kind of remind me of the squid games and they have to get hosed down before they go in and work with the reishi mushrooms to keep everything sterile. They have these big like refrigerator looking storage units for the reishi. It's like a super sophisticated process and then processing them into like reishi pills, like the rope, like it's it, it's very China factory-esque. And I'm not sure if that affects the the polysaccharides or the nadding, was that's the Norwegian word, the nutrition um, nattings in the hold. What is that in English? In the hold, what is held within the nutrients within the mushroom? Is it affected positively or negatively from being grown in such sort of sterile and individualistic conditions? I'm not really sure. Something important to know about growing reishi, what does it want to eat? It has a very strict and kind of narrow diet. Like we said, logs, sawdust, mm, they don't want to eat anything else, okay? And this is in stark contrast to say the oyster mushroom. And I like to say oyster mushrooms have the liberal appetite of pigs, okay? Petroleum, yum. Cardboard, bone apple teeth. Does it have a hydrocarbon chain? Sounds like a four-star Michelin experience, okay? Oyster mushrooms, they ain't picky. They're like your brother-in-law that you can feed anything and he'll respond, oh, that's really good. Good soup. <laughs> but what about you? My partner, he's absolutely a reishi mushroom with his appetite. So we've talked a little bit about the phylogeny and the growing methods of reishi, um, where she comes from. But before we really grease her tires and flesh out all of her health benefits, We've got to take a little detour. Is it, is it a necessary one? Barely. Did I decide to talk about it anyways? Yes. This is based on personal interest. So we're taking a trip to the 90s in Japan to take a look at the Hono Hana Sangpogyo, a religious cult movement of the new, new religious era, the foot reading cult of Japan. Couple quick disclaimers here. I'm about to say some Japanese words. Every episode so far for me of this podcast has been a display of linguistic embarrassment for me as I try to pronounce words in other languages outside of the ones I speak. I'm sorry. And also, I mean, no disrespect. And also, you try saying honohana sangpoyo five times fast and saying it with the right inflection and diction <laughs> and the right speed. Okay, so go easy on me. If you are a man, both, both if you're a Japanese speaker and or a Mandarin speaker, and we know that Chinese is a heavily tonal language, I know this. And I also don't have the muscles and the the finely tuned, attenuated, or the ear to understand how to say Mandarin words with the right tone and inflection. But I will always preface what I'm saying with the English definition anyways. And if I did a good job, I would love positive reinforcement. Thanks. Now this Japanese reading foot call, let's open the notes. It has a tangential linguistic relationship to reishi, and we'll get to that at the end. Let's talk a little bit about this 
Japanese foot reading cult. And also no shade to people who do foot reflexology. I don't know anything about it. I'm not saying it's woo. I haven't done any research on it, but there's a lot of underlying culty motifs to the Japanese foot reading cult that signal huge red flag energy. And I found it super interesting. The foot reading cult of Japan, also known as the Honohana Sangpogyo, was a new Japanese religious movement of the late 80s, early 90s, and disbanded in the beginning of the 21st century. And there are two different references to religious movements. There's the new religious movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, and then there's the new, new religions that started in the 1970s going onward. The Japanese foot reading cult was founded by a man named Fukunaga Hogan who after going bankrupt from his electrician business, was luckily visited by Buddhist monks and Jesus Christ himself, both of which gave him a message that he was to, quote unquote, make the flower of Dharma blossom among all human beings, which sounds like a nice sentiment. Now, if you're like me and you don't follow yoga, Dharma is a big part of yoga and Taoism and Hinduism. Dharma means the true nature of the universe. And there is such a thing called the Dharma code, which are these four principles of truth, purity, nonviolence, and discipline. Luckily, Fukunaga also claimed that he was humanity's final savior and that he was also both Buddha and Jesus reincarnated to act in a messianic capacity. Oh, goody. He claimed to have the power of reading and discovering people's ailments by looking at their feet. And he targeted those of a younger, urban, and well-educated middle class, mostly middle-aged women. At one point, over the course of its roughly 15 to 20 years of operation, it had at its highest point 100,000 members, and even still since 2006 has something along the lines of 2,000 members, although that, that could have dwindled to more recently as like next to nothing. And that's a lot of people. And Japan is also kind of non, mm, non-confrontational or non-interfering with new religious movements. They don't want to step on people's toes. Spiritual autonomy seems to be important to the Japanese people until it becomes a cult, which we'll get to in a little bit. So what did Fukunaga diagnose people with? Anything from AIDS, cancer, suicidal ideation, um, impending financial problems, or failure to find a partner. And he would do this in 10-minute foot reading sessions, and each of those sessions was $900. And most often, he was giving them a prescription of joining his five-day immersive seminars. And those were $18,000. Alongside that, he also had a few other things that he was selling to people. He sold some items at high prices to curb terminal illness or prospective financial troubles, like religious scrolls. And he also had some of Buddha's ashes, and he would sell one pinch of Buddha's ashes for 180,000 US dollars. And also, since he said he was reincarnated from Buddha, aren't they technically his ashes? One has to wonder. Now, in East Asian religious beliefs, there's this emphasis on the ancestors and ancestors worship. So he also said that doing the foot reflexology, he was working through ancestors and reading back into the people's ancestry, which also drew people in. He was basically really smart. He would take the pre-existing ideologies and beliefs and religious references that people were already holding, and then he would bring them into the foot reading sessions. Another thing that he did too, is he made sure that the people who were getting a foot reading session from him would already write down what some of their ailments were. So it wasn't like he was manifesting an ailment out of thin air. He would have information from them based on a questionnaire before they even went in. So I don't know if you call that miracle working or probably not. (laughs) 
Another sad thing that he did too is he would target vulnerable individuals who were post-surgery and at hospitals. He'd be like, oh, you have an ailment? You're in a really vulnerable place and lack agency? Let me read your feet. And it gets darker than that. Recruitment techniques also included telling these family members and threatening them that if they didn't attend the seminars, for example, their children, their loved ones, their partner, their parents would die an untimely death. One of the buffers he used when people started asking questions or found his diagnoses a little bit bizarre is that he would say the divine laws don't go with the paradigm of society. Regular society, they're a bunch of sheep. They wouldn't understand the true nature of spirituality. So he used this sort of as a coverall or a catchall or a buffer towards his super bizarre and unethical practices. He'd also look at the toes of people and say, oh, fat toes mean good fortune and short toes mean a short temper. So there were some sort of physicalities that would follow a person's toes. And I don't know if that actually follows along the lines of reflexology either. Because like I said, I don't want to write off reflexology as something that is not credible to some capacity since I don't know anything about it. Um, But like we said, more emphasis on the unethical nature of his cult. He would take all this money and he spent it on expensive suits and expensive luxury cars. And sure enough, by the early 2000s, his comeuppets was comeuppeting. (laughs) Former members of his Dharma foot reading cult took legal action. And by 2001, he went bankrupt. And in 2005, he was sentenced to prison for 12 years. So this is all tantalizing and interesting information, but what does it have to do with Reishi? Well, I found it while I was on the hashtag JSTOR, hashtag JSTOR for life, looking up Reishi and spirituality. And this was the top article that came up alongside different articles about not only Reishi with spirituality and Japanese culture and Chinese culture, um, but also alongside scientific and medical research for Reishi was this story about a Japanese foot foot reading cult. And Reishi comes into relationship with this, in the form of linguistics, which we're about to talk about all the linguistics of reishi and lingji and uh, ganoderma lucidum in just a second. But there is a Japanese term for what he was doing. I'm going to try my hand at it. It was shukyo maimoku ninyoru akutoku shoho. And I bet you you say it a lot faster and in a more Japanese way. And this translates to fraudulent trade methods in the name of religion. And then below this, there were two other words that were brought up in the name of law when discussing fraudulent practices or potentially fraudulent practices of business. Maybe not necessarily always fraudulent, but these two things could fall into fraudulent business practices in Japan. And one of them was reishi shobai, which translates to business with visionary abilities, maybe like psychic businesses and things like that. And then Ray Khan Shobai, which is business with with ghost diagnosis. <laughs> and I don't know what that means. So then I was like, hmm, that's interesting. What are these words Reishi, Ray, Shi, Ray, Khan, or even I was thinking about Reiki, what do those words break down to? So thank you, Fukunaga, for giving us that tantalizing side story to our Reishi journey today. I guess he's out of prison now. Did he start another cult? Let me know. But yes, Rishi Shobai, business with visionary abilities. You know, that's why we spoke about the cult. It tripped up my interest in this more colloquial use of the word Rishi outside of the mushroom context directly. And this is a great segue into actually picking apart the linguistic terminology of Rishi. Now I must say, humbly, respectfully, I need to call out every single one of these articles on the internet that are like, Oh, reishi directly translates to spirit mushroom. Same thing with lingji, the Chinese word. Which, it's a little bit like, excuse me, ma'am, but if you look up the root words for both, actually, you will find that their meaning is much deeper and definitely doesn't translate to spirit mushroom. And I'm not pointing this out to be that annoying kid in the front of the class that raises their hand first. Although, okay, all tea. 
all shade. That was me growing up. (laughs) But the reason why we need to be more thorough with these words and their meanings is because it tells us so much more about their cultural significance and history, which is why I always take you guys down linguistic rabbit holes. So first and foremost, the very generic term for mushroom in Chinese is, and this is maybe not saying it with the correct tonal inflection, is mogu, and in Japanese it's kinoko, or kinoko. (laughs) Those are the words for mushroom, directly. So what does this say about reishi? So when I was doing my research about reishi, because it's not rei kinoko, that would maybe be more specifically direct translation to spirit mushroom, but it's not. Reishi translates into something different. So the word rei, can mean a few things. It can mean spirit, soul, departed soul. Sometimes it's referred to the use of the word for like universe, universal energy, spirit. And now she, what does she mean? She means, well, a couple of things. It means both death and it means the number four. So it's not a polite thing at all to give somebody something in numbers of four in Japan because it's unlucky and it references death. Then I was like, okay, so this means spirit and death. But then I was also seeing that reishi was being broken down into the word for spirit and lawn or turf. I found one translation for reishi meaning spirit of the lawn or spirit of the turf or spirit of the grass. But like we said, reishi means death. I was like, what does lawn actually translate to in Japanese? Lawn translates into shiba and the word ba in Japanese means a place. So shiba means the place of death. And I guess the ground where your lawn or your turf is the place of death. So reishi, spirit or soul or universe with death and referencing spirit of the lawn, this whole word references spirituality, a higher existence, departing into the next world and doing that through the ground. And this is where you find the mushroom. So you can see that it would tangentially, loosely translate into spirit mushroom, but not directly. A couple of other words that start with the word rei in Japanese are reiki. And ki is the word for vital life force. And you know, reiki is the practice of energy work on the body. So it's like the spirit or soul and the vital life force together. The word reikan, which is super English way of saying that, but R-E-I-K-A-N is the word for inspiration in Japanese. And the word inspiration has the word spirit inside of it, which is cool. And then the word reikan is the word for uh, a ghost, basically. And that word breaks down into the blue spirit or the blue soul, because kan means navy blue. With the word reikan, which we said was the word for inspiration, the term kan in Japanese refers to leisure time, a time of leave or farewell. So a time off for the spirit of the soul is when you can find inspiration. That's the Japanese word for mushroom, which derives from or is translated from the Chinese word for reishi, which is lingji. Lingji. People also say it loosely translates to the word spirit mushroom. But if we break down the word, ling, it means the mediating bivalency or the medium between yin and yang. So where the yin meets the yang, the balance in between, that liminal space means ling. It's that mediation between order and disorder. It's what knits or weaves together this yin and yang energy, the dark and the light, the binaries of the world. That sort of almost superimposed thin place in between is ling. And the second part of that word, ji, is to know, to inform, to be aware of, knowledge to realize or to notify. And it's also used in reference to knitting, weaving, branching, or supporting. So it's like a weaving of the liminal mediating space between yin and yang. 
and that there is a knowledge there, there is a support, there's an understanding when we weave together the yin with the yang. It's very deep, and I'm sorry, that doesn't directly translate to mushroom. (laughs) And it doesn't really even have that much directly to do with the spirit. It's more like the energy of living in this world in a binary way. Ling is like the superimposition or the dissonance between two things at the same time. Some real life examples of Ling besides yin and yang could be an owl, because the owl finds day and the night. A bat is a half bird and a half mammal. A rooster crows at the crack of dawn, right when dusk breaks. So those sort of in-between thinning of the veil places or sort of the contiguation of one thing into another, that is Ling. So the word Lingji is so interesting, it's so deep. And the fact that they're using that word for this mushroom, reishi, Ganoderma lucidum, is such an interesting thing. Now the scientific term for reishi is Ganoderma lucidum, and Ganoderma breaks down, it's a Greek derivative. Ganoderma, Gano means brightness, and sheen, and derma means skin, and lucidum translates to something with clarity or with luminosity. So something of a bright skin with a clarity and luminosity to it doesn't just denote its physical appearance, but also what it can elicit within the person who takes it. So reishi quite literally breaks down into the spirit of death or spirit of the lawn, if you want to say reishi ba. Lingji breaks down into the liminal space between yin and yang and the knowledge and information and awareness of that ling and the breeding and understanding of the darkness and the light. And Ganoderma denotes more of its physical appearance with its bright, shiny skin with luminosity. That is reishi. And I'm very satisfied with that understanding more than just calling it a spiritual mushroom. And I hope that it was enlightening for you. Now, as far as reishi's use medicinally, and there's more research coming out about reishi all the time, It has a dizzying amount of backed scientific peer-reviewed research that it fights against immunological disorders, it's anti-inflammatory, anti-carcinogenic, all these different bioactive compounds that we listed above. But the two most active compounds that are fighting against, you know, tumors and cancer and radiation in the body that have these antioxidative properties in Chinese medicine, reishi is considered the most beneficial herb among 120 superior tonics with antioxidative properties, potent anti-inflammatory properties, like I said, anti-tumor properties. And reishi has also been shown to be anti-hepatotoxic, say that five times fast, which means it helps with preventing disease or dis-ease in the liver. Reishi has been shown to positively act against carcinoma. Reishi may cause apoptosis of cancer cells. Do you remember learning about the word apoptosis in biology? I remember in my AP bio class, we learned about apoptosis and that's what happens to all your cells when you die, the apoptosis of the cell. But it's just targeting cancer cells and making them apoptose themselves into oblivion. Reishi has been shown to induce antibodies against murine Lewis lung carcinoma cells. Now these carcinoma cells are found in the lung and they're also found in the liver, can be found when one has cancer in these places. In humans, it's been shown to be anti-inflammatory in human keratinocytes, which are skin cells on the outermost level, so like skin cancer, and also in mammary glands. Research is being done for breast cancer. Um, So oftentimes, reishi is being used as what one might call a chemopreventative, 
alongside actual chemotherapy. Part of the prescription can also sometimes be reishi and also turkey tail, but we'll have to talk about turkey tail another day. One might call it a, a myco chemo preventative. I made that word up, but maybe somebody will coin it as a real term. And then thinking about this sort of mystical and ancient relationship that reishi or rather lingji has in China, I was looking at the looking at it through the lens of both art and through history. And I was looking up a couple of images and I found one of the, it's titled the Cosmological Buddha. And this is a very ornate metal statue type of sorts. It features reishi at the very top. Okay, so it's basically like this, this imagine if you will, this sort of golden mandalic uh, Buddha statue, but it has lots of other figurines around it and other types of symbology. And you'll find at the very top of this sort of sculpture statue is reishi. It's among the top. It's at the very top of everything. And I found that so cool. 2000 years ago in ancient China, it was believed that reishi only grew in the mountains. In mountains have been always been considered sacred sites of spiritual potential. And so if one were to find and consume reishi uh, while they were in the mountains connecting to nature, they would find that reishi was a very potent way to sort of contiguate the human soul with the land. I find it a great entry point for thinking about ecological interconnectedness. There's also some art from the 17th century by an artist named Chang Tai. It is, it is art created around Shenang, which is the divine farmer who has a basket of lingji. And this divine farmer represents someone, could be anyone, with a superhuman power for finding the mushroom reishi or lingji to create the elixirs for life. I also found some 16th century art by Xin Yang, I think that's how you say it, Q-I-N Yang, in which the mushroom is being gifted to one of the most worshiped goddesses, the queen mother of the West. Now who's the queen mother of the West, okay? She holds her court within her palace on Mount Kunlun, and this is one mythological mountain from a real mountain range along the Tibetan plateau called the Kunlun Mountains. The word Kunlun refers to distant and exotic mysterious places, and many important Chinese mythological stories are based around Kunlun. She was mentioned first mentioned in the oracle bone inscriptions, get on that, of the Shang dynasty in 1766 to 11 22 BCE. She's referenced as the goddess of death with the teeth of a tiger. And she just references being from the place of the West. She's highly revered. So with some of this art and cultural context in mind, it's not surprising to know that reishi or lingji is considered a mushroom of immortality. And back in the day, it was reserved for people of high rank so that they might reach immortality. Seems that people's interest with not dying is such an interesting um, phenomenon. Everyone wants to prevent their death and they're like, reishi is the way to become immortal. And I have some more sort of mythological and spiritual ways of unpacking that, which we'll talk about really soon. The Queen Mother of the West was also known for her peaches, that her peaches that she gave out to people were something of immortality. But it says a lot if somebody is gifting her, who basically gives people either death or immortality, gifting her a basket of reishi. And maybe she was using reishi after that. Maybe Queen of the West, she didn't know much about reishi. So she was using peaches to infuse them with her immortal, immortal zest and zeal. And someone was like, hold up, try this reishi, reishi ba, the spirit or soul of the turf and lawn in the place of death. And she was like, don't mind if I do. This is general motif that death is a woman. 
And it's interesting to find it in Chinese mythology as well, that she's kind of like this lady of death, but that she can also give um, immortality. And although humans cannot be immortal, there are ways that we can experience immortal freeze frames of time. And that comes from experiencing our soul, experiencing spiritual insight, tapping into the spirit world that doesn't exist within the temporal framework of the three-dimensional world. And that's just facts. And before I talk about my relationship to Reishi, I found an article online from blisselixir.com. They seem to be an Australian supplement company. They wrote an amazing little ditty here on Reishi, and they titled it Reishi, the Mushroom of Spirituality. So I just want to share a little bit from it. They did a great job of articulating something that would have taken me more time to do, so I'm just going to go through what they said because I agree with basically everything. They start off with a couple of quotes here. The first is by a woman named Karen Rose. Often, people take herbal medicines for a physical response, but what they find is that the body also responds in an emotional way to the plant medicine that they're taking. Another quote by Ellie. Elliot Cohen states, plant spirit medicine is the shaman's way with plants. It recognizes that plants have spirit and that spirit is the strongest medicine. Spirit can heal the deepest reaches of the heart and soul. And this sounds very similar to episode two, where we discussed Maria Sabina, who is the mushroom shamaness from Oaxaca of the Mazatec people, who stated that she healed through the psilocybin mushrooms, the little children, psilocybes mexicana, but that she only healed through vocalization and that it was this vocalization that moved the spirit to heal itself. The article then goes on to question, can a plant really elevate our spiritual capacity or maybe in this case, a fungal ally? And they say to those unaccustomed to this way of thinking, this might just seem like nothing more than poetic liberty. However, psychedelics show us unequivocally the powerful effects that plants can have on the human psyche. Psilocybin as a compound found in certain mushrooms is an extreme example example of the power of the plant world. The article then goes on to state reishi can be seen as a tamer version of this, a sweet and gentle helping hand in moving beyond our monkey mind to a place of peaceful awareness of the good that is inherent in all things. With a history of use by yogis, emperors, monks, ascetics, it is no wonder this legendary mushroom has earned its name as the mushroom of spiritual potency, the mushroom of immortality, queen healer mushroom, and the medicine of kings. One dose of good quality reishi powder and you will instantly understand its use as a shen tonic, or herb that nourishes the spirit. It is profoundly relaxing to the nervous system, calming to the mind, and induces a state of peaceful focus. One of, if not the most well-researched natural substances on earth, in Japan, it is classified as a primary treatment option for cancer due to its consistently demonstrated anti-carcinogenic effects. And I believe turkey tail is, has been coined the most well-researched mushroom or fungus, actually. <laughs> but I guess reishi is a close second. Like most adaptogenic herbs, reishi also has a supportive and balancing effect on the endocrine system. Hormones are powerful biopeptides that control mood, perception, sleep-wake cycles, bonding, and connection in our awareness of reality. This is the science behind the mushroom's spiritually activating properties. And I'm not reading the entire article here, but the last quote that they have from Ramania Dean Thomas states, We have long known that mushrooms benevolently affect consciousness. Reishi is not psychotropic and does not alter perception, yet it benefits mental clarity and helps instill a reverent attitude. Reishi enhances spiritual enlightenment and seems to, quote-unquote, weave us into the mycelial web of life. The subterranean relationship of fungi with plants is called mycorrhizae, 
Teresa, humans attempted to sever ourselves from this relationship through disassociation with the ground by way of our use of pavement, shoes, and tires, etc. Protracted taking of reishi appears to resuscitate our connection to everything else, plugging us back into our earth. Nature is calling us to reunite for common survival, and that is why I believe reishi and other tonic herbs and superfoods are emerging in our consciousness at this time. End quotes from this lovely article, and I will be thanking all of my sources at the end, but thank you so much to their article from their Bliss Journal from October 1st, 2019, Reishi, the Mushroom of Spirituality by Georgia Muller. So we've done a lot of talking about the science and the history and the culture and the, the linguistics of Reishi. And now I want to save a little bit of time to talk about my relationship to Reishi as I feel qualified to discuss its effects, at least based on how I've been taking it for over a year. I have taken a medicinal dose of reishi before every time I've recorded my podcast, including today. I took a high dose of reishi today. I took five droppers worth of tincture from rainbow mushrooms. If you're wondering, where do I get my reishi from? What would you recommend? I'm not saying this is the only company, but this is the company I found and I'm pretty obsessed with their marketing. I'm obsessed with their brand. I'm I'm obsessed with everything about them. I'm very fixated on their company. Not that I'm not open to trying other supplements, but even in front of me on my desk, I have like a graveyard of old tinctures because I like how they look and maybe I'll use them in a different capacity. And sometimes I use them for like putting water in for my watercolors and my paintings. And then the other side, I have the tinctures I have yet to take. I don't take five full droppers. And we can talk a little bit about like the dosage of reishi and like the difference between a maintenance dose and a medicinal dose. A maintenance dose is simply a lower dose of reishi where it's going to have health benefits, but you might not necessarily feel its spiritual properties. At least that's how I've noticed it. But in higher doses, you will feel it. (laughs) And it doesn't feel like you're tripping. It's almost in the background, kind of like I, Terrence McKenna once talked about his relationship to, to um, okay, this might be a bad example, but I want to talk about like this relational sort of subversive experience that he had with mescaline and mescaline is a psychoactive compound, but he talked about how it sort of snakes around your peripherals and it's like, it is changing things, but not super directly. And you'll think that like nothing's going on and nothing's there until like suddenly there's like your, your reality in your room is changed and you've very sneakily hallucinated something. That was kind of his way of describing mescaline. And reishi does not make you hallucinate. It's not that. It's just think about how sometimes you experience your brain when you haven't taken the supplement. And maybe your mind is racing a lot. You're anxious. You're distracted. There's sort of like a baseline that a lot of people are functioning from, maybe from scarcity, from one might call the beta brainwave state, which is the brainwave state we have when we're focusing, we're calculating, we're trying to solve problems, we're trying to think in a logical way. That's like beta brainwave state, and a lot of us spend a lot of time there. And reishi could be more like a alpha or or theta brainwave state. It's kind of elevating you to kind of a meditative, stress-free place. And something we also didn't talk about with reishi is that it is inherently adaptogenic, which means it mitigates stress and cortisol in your body without you actually having to meditate, which is kind of nice. I like to do holotrophic breathing depending on the time of the month, but I'm not one to sit down and actively meditate. Like I meditate through creating art or dancing or singing or moving my body usually, but I still want the benefits of sitting still and meditating. (laughs) So I take reishi instead. And I spoke about this in, was it the two episodes ago in episode three of the Future Mycelium podcast, I did reference my use of reishi and discuss it a little bit at the end, but I talked about why I think reishi 
is this compound that can help us tap into the higher elements of our soul, right? And I think it is because at its baseline, it is so beneficial to our physiology. And it's so, it's like almost like a tonic for the body that it's reducing and sort of clearing out cortisol, stress, waste, cancer, cancer cells, mutated DNA. It has the, the, it has the capacity to help reverse all of those things. And that makes it easier for your body to just exist in the world. And I'm someone with a lot of sensory needs as well. So if you're like neurodivergent or you're autistic or something like that, or maybe ADHD or some sort of amalgamation mosaic of sensory things that haven't been diagnosed, but you still find yourself easily overstimulated, reishi could be a really awesome thing because it can help tune or tune out or tune down the loud world without you having to try. So what happens when your body is calm and in a place of equilibrium and homeostasis in a really refreshing, tonified way? That allows you to tap into that inner voice, that sort of spiritual, intuitive, higher self that's connected to the next life. And it's hard to listen to it when we're constantly distracted and stressed out. It easily gets drowned out. But when you take away all of those distractions, what are you left with? A more spiritual path, I guess, if you can allow yourself. And I would also say there is a privilege to spirituality given how much time you spend working for somebody else or family time commitments and things like that. But even even so, if you're looking for a way to start honoring and choosing yourself, taking reishi might be one of those ways that you proclaim or affirm for yourself that you want to reach greater heights within your own spiritual journey within this life because we're all here to grow and evolve. And it's funny too, because we like the idea of spiritual marketing, this sort of sublime, the chill, the zen, I just want to find the, I'm wearing a sweatshirt now from this company called the Museum of Peace and Quiet. (laughs) And it's titled Peace and Quiet Zen Center. (laughs) And I bought this quite a while after I started taking Reishi. And it's funny that I chose to wear it today. But yeah, you know, we like this idea of like the spiritual journey being like, I'm reaching nirvana and I'm feeling peace and I'm feeling bliss. But the spiritual journey, life's journey has ebbs and flows and highs and lows and peaks and troughs. And, you know, you you can't really have the really amazing highs of spiritual and self-autonomy without, you know, reaching deep down into the depths of your dark stuff. And I think Reishi forces you to look at that stuff, but it also gives you the capacity to handle it better. Because going into the psyche and stirring things up and questioning yourself and seeing what your flaws are and being brutally honest about how you're holding your own self back, this is not easy work. If it were easy work, everybody would be doing it but they're not. (laughs) And one of the reasons why people aren't doing it is because they don't have the tools. They don't really know where to start. And there's a lot of different levels and different entry points and access points to having religious and spiritual experiences. There's kind of a thousand different paths to the same place sometimes, you know? And I think if you're a little unsure of where to start, you know, self-trust is really important with the spiritual journey. And Reishi gives you so many tools and so many benefits that are both visceral and direct that it's harder to say no to it if it's what you want. There's a lot less excuses when you take reishi because you're less stressed, you're less distracted, you're more tuned in. What else are you going to do? We talked about in episode three in psychedelic agency, this idea that one should have access to different varying amounts of both psychoactive and non-psychoactive plant and fungal allies because they are sacred tools for us to explore the psyche, to unearth the things that are meant to be unearthed. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about this idea of Lady Death, the Queen of the West. And in mythology across the world, there's this idea that death is a woman and that 
that, you know, in general, we talked that having psychedelic experiences is inherently feminine because it, it brings to the surface the nature of existence, which is this death and rebirth cycle. And I found Reishi very much as that. I've had a lot of personal internal deaths. I had one very recently that was very powerful. And of course, I don't personally attribute all of my um, spiritual experiences to a physical substance. Like, I don't think Reishi is the only thing. I believe in a creator and I believe in the oneness of God energy, whatever your God is to you. But I also believe that God put different substances onto the earth for us to use in order to access higher spiritual ways of thinking, to purify the heart, to feel in alignment, and to feel at peace more often. <laughs> Can't feel peaceful all the time in the, in the earthly realm, but you can make choices to honor yourself and to trust yourself on a daily basis and take accountability for your life so that you can feel more blissful and in that way feel a sense of immortality. When you don't feel like you're constrained by earthly suffering, when you're free from suffering, you are experiencing a more immortalized state because angels and God and spiritual beings are guides. They don't experience suffering. They also might not necessarily have free will besides God, you know, but I'm not going to get too into like the esoteric religious side of some beliefs, but just to say that, you know, we are humans and we have some level of free will or we have the illusion of free will and we have a lot of choices we have to make. We have a lot of decisions to make to honor ourselves as divine creations. And there's a lot of things that we can do to damage or to repair ourselves and our energy in this life. Not a single cell in your body is the same one that was there seven years ago. Your entire existence has a code written by DNA that makes you kind of look the same from cradle to grave, but there's nothing about your existence that is the same from when you were born. You are not the same that you were. And even tomorrow, you don't have to be the same. You can make yourself new. And in this climate in the world, the change has to start with you. Reishi can be a way to choose that change without being so scared because you can feel, I believe you can feel the reishi within you. Reishi has a language. Reishi, mushrooms, like I've said, are very, very vocal. Reishi is there to help you. And I think it helps if you, you know, loneliness is a mindset that comes from a lack of self-trust and self-love and trauma. And solitude is being able to be alone and to enjoy that alone time. You know, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. There's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Reishi welcomes in that solitude and pushes away distraction and says, you know, I'm here. I'm welcoming you with open arms and you are accepted as you are, flaws and all. There, I will help you to become kind of what I represent. You are what you eat. And if Reishi is this immortalized sort of queen of mushrooms, then if you're letting that course through your body in a medicinal capacity for a year, you might start feeling kind of like an immortalized queen. I'm just saying, but in a non-egocentric way. There's this idea that, you know, we can get a little overwhelmed when we want to change a lot of things about our lives, but we don't know where to start. Sometimes it's not about changing a hundred little things. It's about changing one or two things. And those two things can be giant keystones, kind of like a clock with gears that when you turn that one gear, it's going to turn everything else. And I find Reishi is one of those keystones that just makes you want to focus on all these other ways to heal yourself, whether that's through art, through connecting with new people, through self-reflection and self-contemplation, through reprioritization of your values. I mean, the list goes on. The subjective and ephemeral and visceral sensations and experiences of taking Reishi are so varied from person to person. And I always say that the mushroom will give you whatever it is that you need. So maybe what I got isn't what you're going to get, but maybe some of what you need is what I also needed and you will get too. I would like to talk a little bit more about how Reishi helped Wei show me through a dark night of the soul. 
I was increasingly throughout my whole life, I was very afraid of who I was. And I was very uh, afraid of exposure and didn't want to be vulnerable with anyone around me. So I would shape shift and I would mask and I would just try to be something different than what I was. Trying to become a quilt of every experience I ever had and every person I ever met so that I could hide from what was really going on inside of me. And that coupled with growing up in a more impoverished uh, life circumstance, I grew up just being really dissatisfied with mostly who I was as a person. I did not accept who I was and not enjoying a lot of my life environmental situations And just feeling like, you know, even if I don't know how to honor myself, I just feel like I deserve better. Or maybe I just want to experience myself in a different way. So there was a part of me that always knew that I would have the growth and the evolution and I wanted it. I just didn't know what it would cost and how long it would take for me to get there and what I would need to get myself there. I mean, there's like a huge biological component there, like just being simply too young to understand what you need. Like naivete is like a thick blanket that wraps us up and slowly uncoils itself as we age, I think. Hopefully for those who want to break free from the shackles of the shackles of fragile ego, egoic existence that comes from growing as a young person, <laughs> emerging from that feels pretty good so that you can care about things besides yourself. And I got to a place, you know, I'm I'm a life coach. I haven't ever talked much about that, but I'm a life coach, a mushroom way shower, a death way shower. I'm connected into all of that stuff. And for the past four to five years, I have been working with other people to release latent potential, to help them grow, to help them build businesses, whatever it is that they want to do. And it got to a place where I was feeling like, yeah, I was living partially in alignment with who I naturally was and what naturally came easy to me. And my life coaching business if you want to call it that, like life coach, that's the best label I can think up to like what I was doing, you know, way shower, life um, business was going really well. And then suddenly I I have a very stubborn higher self. You cannot force me to do something I don't want to do. In some ways, I'm an incredibly stubborn person when it comes to how and when and what I do for a living or what I'm doing to thrive and be divinely compensated. And suddenly I was kind of having a breakdown or getting really nervous because suddenly I just didn't want clients anymore. I didn't want to further my business. I didn't want to grow it. I was feeling really stuck. And this is also, I had a huge responsibility for nine or 10 clients right after I gave birth. And so I was juggling all of the emotional energy of a lot of people and still not really honoring that transition into motherhood and ignoring a lot of my life, (laughs) a lot. So it was really hard for me. I didn't understand. I'm like, well, I feel like I'm so doing what I'm meant to be doing. But then one day I woke up and it was like, oh, oh no, I lost it. I don't know what to do. And I knew I had to be doing something else. So then I just kind of, I didn't stop. I'm still, I still do life coaching and things like that. I pressed the brakes a little bit. And when I slow down, I realize, (laughs) yeah, well, no wonder I have so much I need to check in with myself and so many things I need to fix in my own life that kind of went unchecked because I was hiding behind my my established intellectual and spiritual self for a long time. (laughs) And you can tell you need to change when you stop deriving joy from the things you should be deriving joy from. You need to take inventory when your emotional body feels hopeless, negative, doubtful 
unaligned, when you just feel kind of gross and just sort of like there's really no place left to escape, that's when you have to face it. And I heard the founder of Rainbow Mushrooms, who I did say in the third episode of the Future Mycelium podcast that she was going to share her Reishi journey with us. Uh, Now is the holiday time. She's really busy. (laughs) She said, you know, she will share that with me at some point and I will incorporate it into the podcast episode later on. I heard her speaking on a podcast about how Reishi was a coming of age for her and it welcomed her with open arms. And just over a year ago, I said, you know, I'm looking for that because I live in Norway away from all of my family and friends and I spend a lot of time alone, but I didn't want to feel like I was doing it all completely alone besides from therapy and, you know, talking to friends. I have support, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm alone a lot and I want a little extra support. Everyone needs support in different ways. So when she said that, I said, you know, I'm going I'm going to start taking this. I'm going to start taking a medicinal dose and I'm going to see what happens in my life. <laughs> And what unfolded was the most powerful um, chronic phase of Dark Night of the Soul I've probably ever gone through since some more mm, latent dark nights and dark phases of my life when I was younger, because you can feel the ebbs and flows of your dark side when you're more self-aware. So when I started tapping into that, I'm like, this is, ow, (laughs) owie. It do be like, ow. But Reishi was there and Reishi's like, it's going to hurt, but it it's not going to be that bad. Like you can get through it. So this is over since like the November before last. I always started taking it. And then I started making lots of art, like painting all the time. And I started selling my art and doing mostly like mountain paintings, actually. Lady of the West, what's up? <laughs> started painting a lot and selling my art and taking myself in a completely di- different direction than what I was doing. But through the painting, I was starting to heal myself and trust myself. And after Easter of last year, I finally had this big explosive day. Basically, my ego shattered while I was sober and... My life as I knew myself was like scattered all across the floor of my house. And then I had to start rebuilding and picking what is worth keeping and what needs to be put in the bin. (laughs) What is not coming with me going forward? What can no longer exist based on what I know about myself? And it was a lot. (laughs) And then, um, you know, after that, I started to feel more free. I had to build up trust in new ways. I had to rediscover myself in new ways, but I was way more vulnerable and more comfortable with being vulnerable. I felt okay with exposure. I'm like, I've spent my whole life avoiding exposure and it caused me a lot of pain. So what if I just lean into it and I accept everything I'm about, experiencing about myself and I start following the trail of mushrooms, which is why we're here today. I just decided to bury an old version of myself and let something new grow. And maybe it was Reishi. (laughs) So fast forward to today, I am a lot more vigilant with my inner predator. I take a lot of time to have hard conversations with myself and I do it sort of almost sadistically. It's like I want to capture my ego and I want to see the shadows and I will just point it out and be like, okay, only the illusion of my fear is what's causing me pain. When I actually address it, write it down, work through it and find solutions of what I'm going to do about it, I can grow and I can move on. And Reishi is one of those things that helps alongside that. I mean, your ego is always just as smart as you, like your shadows always find a way to be creeping around, but you need to have the shadows so that you can push yourself forward to grow. 
You go further when you go up and down and expand and contract and expand and contract. It's life, death, life, death, life, death, life. That's the whole, it's your whole life is living and dying and living and dying. <laughs> but they're two, they're not even the different sides of the same, uh, same coin. They're basically two halves of the same side of the, of the coin, I think. I'm still taking a medicinal dose, but I listen intuitively and I follow my cycle. There's like a lot of womb wisdom that has come into my life where I felt a calling for. So I find reishi is a really, really nice tonifying thing to take in higher doses approaching my time of the month. And then once I'm getting more into my ovulatory phase, I feel I need a bit less, maybe like two droppers a day in my matcha when I'm not in that sort of PMSing, like low energy kind of space. But when I'm getting closer to my time of the month, there's a heightened awareness of everything. I think the the veil between worlds thins for women when our portal is sort of like opening up in that way. And we're getting ready to shed a part of ourselves and like make home for something new that it can be really intense. And it's not that I'm trying to avoid it, but I want to be able to face it. And when I take a higher dose of reishi, I'm more focused and more accepting. And also if you get really sensitive in your body, like I find I'm just like really sensitive in ways that are way more intense for me physically. And that caused me stress during those like last three, four days before my time of the month, I will take reishi and it helps a lot. It's like, I can, I feel like I can honor that time of the month and I can be really inside of myself and accept those dark, icky parts of me that, because it feels a little bit more manageable or feels like I have a more intuitive understanding as to why I have to go through that every month. And I feel like I sort of midwife myself through it or reishi helps midwife me through that time of the month as well. And if you're a man, <laughs> and you're like, I don't really understand that. Like, should I take reishi if I don't have, and I'm not necessarily saying man, but male, if you don't have female reproductive organs, like, should you take reishi? <laughs> and I would say, yes, like life goes in cycles and ebbs and flows. And I'm not positive, but I thought I read somewhere that men have a cycle every month as well. It's just not like ours. <laughs> um, and I'm just saying this as a, as a side. I, I have been paying more attention to using reishi with like with womb work more recently. But back in the day, I was like, just hail Mary, I'm taking a high dose every day, I'm going to see what happens. And now I kind of just scale it back. And I also take cordyceps as well. And cordyceps is really great because I do a lot of training and exercising. And I think as a mom, one of the best things I can do for myself so that I feel um, like not overwhelmed is another, another form of support for me is physical ability and agility so that I can get up and not feel like I, my joints are a thousand years old or to feel like I can exercise and push myself to new heights physically. I like to push myself in like every dimension of my life. Cordyceps is great for um, helping with oxygen uptake in our blood and you can feel it. Even some Olympians have said that they, this isn't blood doping, but it's like mushroom doping. <laughs> I wonder if at some point they'd be, they'd maybe do research on, um, Olympians who take cordyceps and they'd see like a marked difference between those who take it and don't, and then they would maybe ban it. But since mushrooms aren't super mainstream in that way, they haven't. <laughs> so I love these two together. And there are other types of mushrooms like turkey tail and lion's mane and chaga, to name a few, tremella, shiitake, maitake, shiitake, maitake, etc. And these are all really great fungal allies. I just find that, you know, it costs money to take you know, mushrooms. And I could maybe eventually make my own tinctures and make my own ceremonial reishi. I would love to do that. Let's hope we can plant seeds to manifest that for everyone. But since I'm paying um, a decent amount of money for these supplements, this medicine every every day, 
I want to take what makes the most sense for my lifestyle. And Lion's Mane is known for creativity and like focus. And I find that like my my creative mind is always spinning on all four cylinders like all the time. So I don't really feel a need or a pull for that one. And the benefits of like chaga and turkey tail, I'm finding like there's a lot of similar properties in reishi. Maybe in the future, I'll take those things. And there's also something to be said to feel a calling to start working with a plant or fungal ally. And the only ones I'm feeling a pull for, which we could talk about in the future, I want to start taking blue lotus um, because I have been finding more recently, um, since this more recent death of self I went through, that I've been having a lot more vivid dreams, which is why I talked about the dream in the beginning opening story today, the dream of the white tiger and the call of the jungle cat and sort of this call to rewild the heart and the self. And that has come also through a rediscovery of the higher spiritual path of creativity. And I'm reading a book right now called The Artist's Way by by Julia Cameron. It's been really, really amazing. So, so like medicine can come in a lot of different forms. It can come through reishi. It can come through a book. It can come through uh, a passing with a stranger. It can come through creating art. It can come through taking your prescription pills every day, <laughs> you know, but expanding our idea of what is medicinal for us? What does medicine mean? What can we derive from our experiences that nourishes our spirit? Because our spirits are incredibly powerful motivators and exacerbators of both ease and dis-ease. I hope that our discussions of reishi today have wet your palate, have wet your interest. And I also want to say that despite my zest and zeal for reishi, and maybe I've convinced you to take it today, is that I would not tell you to take reishi and to replace it with a different prescription you're already taking and just emphasis on self-autonomy, making the decision for yourself And I also cannot overstate that my podcasts are basically just like jumping off points for you to go and do research more on your own. If you have more questions about reishi that I didn't uh, address in this episode today, please feel free to also just hit me up and uh, send me an email, send me a message on Instagram or even TikTok. You can find me on TikTok at future mycelium and I will be happy to uh, talk to you about it. If you're wondering like, well, can you overdose on reishi? It's virtually impossible to overdose on reishi, (laughs) but I guess too much of anything in any capacity isn't good for you. And I guess I'd say like the on the other end of it, something you'd maybe want to be vigilant of is you never want to be too dependent on anything outside of yourself. I take reishi because it's supplemental. A supplement is supposed to go alongside the hard work that you're doing yourself. It's not a replacement for the hard work. So I wouldn't go into the use of reishi and say, this is going to be the thing that makes the change for me. It helps make the change possible for you. It helps you see and believe that you can make the change. The white tiger is a rare anomaly amongst Bengal tigers, with only one in 10,000 being born with white fur. The white tiger does not show itself to many, staying hidden, The same for the black panthers, who are nearly extinct. Many big cats in the world are critically endangered, and yet seeing these animals in real life, in our mind's eye, or in our dreams, is above all else an invitation, a call, and a warning all wrapped up into one. When they are shown to us, we see reflected in ourselves the same potential for great majesty, strength, and prowess against all odds. When these jungle cats roar, They awaken something bellowing and archaic deep inside of us, something that makes 
honoring and respecting nature feel like the best thing we could ever do. Many of us reject this nature and are afraid of our own power. When the tiger or panther approaches, we must choose to stand by its side instead of running away. There is a deep roar within us as well. We are being asked to heed. Will you stalk on all fours to meet it? Will you bare your massive teeth and claw tooth and nail for it? Will you listen? Will you act? Now it is time to thank our sources. Thank you to the journal article by Sarika Amdekar, Ganoderma lucidum reishi, source of pharmacologically active compounds. Thank you to onewillowapothecaries.com for their article, Reishi, a psychedelic of the unseen. Thank you to hyperallergic.com for their article, Hunting for the Magic Mushrooms of Ancient East Asian Art, a mushroom perspective on sacred geography, explores the visual history of the Lingji mushroom in art from China, Japan, and Korea. Thank you to the image from the JSTOR titled Cosmological Buddha, Lokana Buddha, the Three Religious Leaders, Artist Unknown, Thank you to journal article, Immunization of Fucose-Containing Polysaccharides from Reishi Mushroom Induces Antibodies to Tumor-Associated Globo H-Series Epitomes. And that is by many people contributed to this article. Shi Fan Lao, Qi Hui Liang, Ming Yi Ho. And I don't want to disrespect the authors of this article because they're all uh, Mandarin names and I don't know how to say them. But this is from the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, volume 10, number 34, National Academy of Sciences 2013. Titled Prevention of Radiation-Induced Damages by Aqueous Extract of Ganoderma Lucidum Occurring in Southern Parts of India from Current Science Journal, Volume 91, Number 3, Temporary Publisher 2006, from authors Pile Thulajji et al. Thank you for the article titled Prevention of Mammary Adenocarcinoma and Skin Tumor by Ganoderma Lucidum, a Medicinal Mushroom Occurring in South India by Lakshmi and Sheena et al. from the Current Science Association. This is volume 97, number 11 from December 2009. Thank you to wordhippo.com for helping me with my needs for understanding the Japanese language. Thank you to the Wikipedia articles about polypores and about Ganoderma lucidum. Thank you to growcycle.com, how to grow reishi mushrooms, the ultimate guide. Thank you for the video from Noel Farm, How It's Grown Reishi, Red Reishi Mushroom Farm, Reishi Mushroom Harvest and Processing. And thank you to orientaloutpost.com slash dictionary for my understanding of Chinese and Mandarin when translating linguistic terms for lingji. Those are all our sources. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.